We started this new series last week called Love. I kind of want to remind you, recap where we were the first week of the series. The first week we talked about the way you look at me. And, and there's one of these things that I kind of have sometimes as a pastor where I get done and um, I know you guys are like, oh, thank God he's done, right? I get it. But then I look back and I'm like, man, was that even clear? <laughs> and so I thought, here's a good chance for me to recap what I'm, what, the one sentence from last week. And, and here's the bottom line is that we need to always know or learn, remember, and then apply the way Jesus sees us more than anything else in our lives. And if there's one thing that stood out to me just from sharing the word with you last week was that we have a tendency to have this model of how Jesus loves us and then this model of how we see ourselves. And then instead of believing what Jesus says about us, we believe the lie that we tell ourselves and then we, we get rid of the gospel. And that's not how this works at all. The gospel is true and we are being conformed or transformed or shaped to match the gospel of Jesus Christ not the other way around, right? And that, that is a point that is a whole lot of consternation for us because we end up being frustrated in our lives because we think that somehow that God is gonna shape himself to us versus us being shaped to him. So it's just important that we see how, how God loves uh, us. And as a matter of fact, with that in mind, I wanna share a scripture with you this morning. And this is from, as we get started, this is from 1 John. There's so many texts that, we, that come to mind when we're uh, doing these things together. But 1 John 4, 19, and I think I have it. Oh, that is not the right slide. Let's see here. Yeah, 1 John 4, 19, and it reads like this. We love because he first loved us. That's the whole verse. We love because he first loved us. And that gives you the idea that, that the way that Jesus sees us is paramount because it helps shape how we go into the world, right? And so we have this chance to actually see ourselves rightly when we read ourselves into the text as recipients of the gospel and as those that Jesus died to save. That shapes our love. And this, there's just no way to say this, but that is, if we can get that in our lives, everything else is completely transformed by that reality. Like, how do we, how do we love other people? How do we forgive other people? How do we live with other people? If, if we understand how much we've been loved and how much we've been forgiven, how much we've been cared for by God, then we can freely love those around us. And so it's this idea that keeping in mind the way that Christ sees us as sheep in need of a shepherd, as sinners in need of redemption, he then forgives and redeems us through the cross. If we know that, all of a sudden we can love other people because he first loved us. That's how we love rightly. And I want to share another text with you. So, so what does this look like then? If, if we're called to you know, not be self-focused, what does it look like? And there's another text, and this is from Philippians um, 2. Three and four, but I think I want to read a little more than that. Let me pull it up here. Two, three, and four. Yeah, so I have, again, that one up here, but that's part of the verse. I want to read um, verses one and two as well. This is what the word says. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort in his love, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion, then make my, Paul's writing, joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And then we're going to get to these verses here. So do nothing out of selfish conceit or vain ambition, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
And so here it is again, this kind of this that idea. Don't do things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but instead, so our tendency is to do things that we want to do, but instead of doing those things, in humility, look to the good of other people around us, right? So not us, but others. And we, we are called clearly to do that. And by the way, I just want to mention, because I did, I always want to look at the context. When Philippians is written, this part, it's a beautiful verse, but it's written when Paul says, you're going to partake in my sufferings, that you're going to, you're going to be shaped by suffering. And he says, so because of that, that therefore, um, if you have any encouragement in, with Christ, and so we have this opportunity um, to, yeah, Paul says the same struggle I thought for a minute. Wait a minute, is that right? Yeah. Since you're going through the same struggle that I saw, you saw that I had, if you have any encouragement, have the same love, thinking not of yourself, but of those around you. And so we have some clear instructions here to have um, not ourselves, but others. Don't believe what we, don't even believe what you believe about yourself. Believe what God believes about you and then live out. And that all seems super simple. But that's where we're going to spend our time this week in that second part. And I'm going to go back two slides. I put my slides in the wrong order because I'm good. And we'll see if this works. Easy, easy. All right. Well, that was close to what we wanted to do. So, O, for the only one I see. And that's what we're talking about this week. So if we're not talking about ourselves, about others, and then we're going to get off in the weeds here this morning, guys. So just be, care- be ready because we're going we're gonna to go. And we're going to get into some stuff that's like, well, if our job is not to be focused on ourselves and selfish ambition, but we're focused on other people, then how do we actually do that? For the only one I see. What are we supposed to be looking at as we pursue this idea of love? We're going to do what we always do before we jump into the text any further is we're going to um, pray and ask God for his wisdom and revelation, even over what we've already talked about from the text and also what we're about to talk about in the text. So pray with me if you would. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come together into your presence and to learn about love, uh, to think again about how we're called to love one another. And um, Father, it's so easy, for me anyway, to get on the other side of this and think of how all the brokenness that's found, and for sure we sense that, but we know that you've not come to leave us in that brokenness, but to lead us into truth, to lead us into a fuller understanding, a, a a totality of understanding of what love looks like, of how we are called to love. And this morning, Lord, we just admit that we don't understand that as well as we should, and that we need to learn from you, uh, learn from your word, and, and, and to help us to diagnose our own brokenness, but also the, then run to you, the healer. <laughs> Father, not, not just to be, oh yeah, we're broken, and then stay there, but to, to realize our brokenness and then, and then cling to the gospel of hope, that you have called us into love, and that you've called us um, to be loved and to love others. So help us to do that this morning as we enter into your word. Um, give us the wisdom of your Holy Spirit, your presence, and your uh, infinite wisdom. We pray it in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm just going to take a minute to get my slides back now where we want to be. I think we're going to be right there. All right. So, so this is the week, man. This Friday, in case you all aren't aware, is Valentine's Day. I wasn't aware. Someone's like, is next Friday Valentine's? It was my wife that said that. She's not in the room right now. And I'm like, it is. <laughs> There's a little like fear thing that goes through your mind. Like, what? what? It's, this, it's next Friday? Yeah, it's this Friday. By the way, White Castle, just saying, reservations, classy. They're sold out already? That was my whole plan. 
Sadly, Chris doesn't like White Castle, though, so she'll be happy they're sold out. I've never, I've never actually got the opportunity to take her um, to White Castle and Valentine's. Darn it. Oh, man. Because, you know, if you can class up White Castle, you can class up anything. You know what I'm saying? I dig it. I know. Waffle House will be next then, I guess. So, um, what, for, so the, our whole culture is getting ready to celebrate this idea of Valentine's, and we celebrate love. And this is the almost irony of this time of the year, right? Because Dale said it this morning. There's red hearts, and there's red balloons, and there's red roses, and there's chocolate, 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 right? There's chocolate everywhere. By the way, I've seen plenty of people eating Valentine's chocolate already, and I mean, I don't know where it's even coming from. It's just out there, right? And, uh, but we do that at the same time. We kind of do these two weird, really weird things as a culture where we're like, yes, love. We aspire to love. And then we objectify each other at the same time. It's really strange, isn't it? Like we do this, like, we love each other. We're called to love each other. Can't we all just love? Love, you've even heard people say things like, love trumps evil. And all these kind of slogans that are pithy and cute and beautiful. And then we turn our faces and we objectify one another. I've already shared with you a few ways that I feel like that these things happen, that there's this kind of like whiplash happening in our culture. Yes, we want stable households. Yes, we want strong families. Yes, we want people to love and respect each other. Oh, and by the way, we're going to use all of your God, uh, we believe, God-designed traits to manipulate you to respond in inappropriate ways. That's why I think it's really weird about this whole holiday for us. Because we put it on this shelf of like, oh, it's going to be beautiful and wonderful and lovely. And then we have this whole other 364 days a year. We're just going, sex sells. <laughs> you know what I mean? Get excited. I don't know if anybody watched the Super Bowl last week. I watched it, right? Didn't really care who won. But the halftime show, there, I'm not trying to get approved, but there were times I'm like, really? This is what we do now at the halftime? I know, okay, it's football. I mean, I get it. But still, what's going on? And I hate to even say it because I said, Lord, I'm not going to say that this morning about the halftime show because that just, you know, it's like some old crazy church curmudgeon. But if you watched it and if you didn't, don't. Just don't. It's fine. Just go watch their videos. I mean, it's a little better. Sometimes the videos are even better than the halftime show. It was craziness, some of the things. I don't understand what we're doing sometimes. As a matter of fact, I've told you before, but the way we're often manipulated is through that God-given desire that he's put in us, and it's manipulated by the culture. We're like, I don't know what we're like. We're like uh, animals, <laughs> you know? They just mess with us, and it's so, I think it's so prevalent now, we don't even see it. We're like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. It's just culture. It's just how we are, right? No big deal. Um, I mentioned you before, sometimes you watch the billboards, how we sell um, things, products to one another. I mean, it, it's often with the temptation toward a relationship. As a matter of fact, even when you look at like, car commercials, it's all about like being winsome and being handsome and being classy and being you know, impressive and getting the girl or getting the guy. It's all about this empowerment idea. It's so strange. Because we do these two different things. And it's like, do we want what we say we want? I was um, checking something out this week I thought was so funny. I was watching an interview, and it was a young man, probably in his 20s. I would, you'll know why I think in his 20s in a minute. And he was wearing a, a, an all-white suit. Now, I'm old enough to believe that when I saw him, like, oh, my gosh, he's wearing a Don Johnson suit, ironically. That's what I thought. Miami Vice, anybody? Okay, only me. But, you know, uh, what was that? Anyway. I can't remember the names, but I just remember that, that the cool kids when I was in high school would dress like Don Johnson, you know. But here's what this kid done in this outfit. He wore an all-white suit. And this is why I thought he was in his mid-20s with no shirt. No shirt. He was in a serious interview. It was, I kept thinking, is he not wearing a shirt? 
for this interview, they had to clip the mic on his lapel. They couldn't even do nothing to clip it to. There's no nothing. And he's wearing this thing, and I'm trying to take this guy seriously. I'm watching it, and I'm, I'm thinking, who is this guy? And why is he wearing a white like, suit with no shirt on? I know, I really sound like an old curmudgeon. I get it. But I was like, what's the deal? And then this is what he says. He actually got that design from a female pop star, and he wanted to see what happened if he wore it. And I thought, oh, my gosh. If that was a woman wearing that outfit, I'd just be paying attention. I'm being real. I wouldn't be like, why is she wearing that? And this isn't about shaming women. Don't hear that. Because I was shaming him. I'm like, dude, what are you thinking? Nobody needs to see that. What are you doing? Who are you trying to? I was telling my wife, don't look. Don't. No, she wasn't even watching with me. You know how it is these days. But I thought, and it was funny, because I'm like, he did this on purpose. He's, it was a setup. It was a beautiful setup, because I was falling for it. I'm like, what is, and he's like, the, the, he's just talking about the boundaries and culture and how we don't respect them. It was just, you know, do whatever, do whatever. Who's going to think differently? And I thought, here, he was just trying to be hip and cool. I'm like, wow, that's what that dude's doing. And he was, I guess. He was doing it. We think about the things, the only one we see. What are we looking at all the time? What are we focused on? You know, the, the scriptures say, um, don't love your, you know, um, Love because he first loved us, and think of others as more than ourselves. So, so don't think of our own selfish desires, our own, our own conceit, but to look to other people. Well, how do we do that then practically? What does it look like? And we have all this brokenness. I'm going to run through some things. I'm not picking on any one thing here. This is what's wild to me. As I was reflecting on this text, and I talked to some friends <clears throat> who has various struggles, and they're very honest with me about what they struggle with, and, and I'm like, I want to understand how life really works. I want to understand because God is the author of all life. So what does it really look like, right? So here's some ways that I feel like um, things get wonky in our culture. And the first I've already mentioned is objectification. And that's where we hear thrown around a lot, but it just means to make a person an object, right? To take a real 3D human breathing person, spirit-filled image-bearing person, and make them an object to be used, manipulated, and done away with later. And, that, and that's not just, we can sometimes put that only in a particular realm, but it can be objectification of almost any form of humanity where we don't allow them to be fully human, how we objectify one another. Another way that we see this um, in our culture right now is same-sex relationships. We just see how there's this, like, I'm, I'm, we're, I'm, we're going to go out and talk about it. We're, and we're not going to be ashamed. And I understand that. I'm not, it's kind of funny because I'm like, I get you wanting to own who you are, but what does that mean? What does it mean, and is that a good thing um, for you? And that's really a fair question, I think, right? But here, lest I be told to be picking on people, what about broken heterosexual relationships? I get so discouraged when I see over and over again adultery and infidelity inside and outside the church. And I'm not saying that like I should be surprised because, you know, Paul's writing to the church about brokenness. But yet, I'm so discouraged when I find it. Dale said this morning, if we love, we don't commit adultery. And you go, duh, but then we do. And that scares me. So it's not like there's a particular group who has the, the, um, you know, the, 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 the major part of the sin problem here. That's what I wanted you to hear this morning. I want to understand what it is about this time of year. We hold up this high, beautiful value, and then <laughs> we live in this kind of deranged, twisted life. And we just act like that's okay. That's just how it is. No big deal. Here's something else. And this is because I'm old, right? But this whole thing now with hookup culture, like I'm not saying we were saints whenever I was young. We were not saints when I was young, but it was, it was certainly not a, a, a normal thing. Well, not for me anyway. 
you know? This whole idea of friends with benefits? I mean, there's some of these conversations that we have. With, I have with people, and it just, it just kind of creeps me out. I'm like, what? What does that even mean? If I had been with my friends growing up, I would have so much confusion in my relationships. I don't understand. I know, you're old. I get it. But what's going on? And here's the question we have to ask about all these things. Is it wise? Is it wise to live that way? Well, see, I'm just trying to diagnose the problem from a human perspective. I'm trying to understand the, all the ways. And by the way, that's not all the ways we failed. So I'm not saying, well, that's all the sin there is to worry about. Like, that's just some of the ways that it's pretty obvious we failed. And by the way, catch the language, we have failed. Not they have failed. Not those people have failed. But us, the ways that I have failed, the ways that we have failed. So I have to ask a question of Scripture then. Well, if our brokenness is in love and not being perfect in love, like if that's a brokenness we have as a culture, well, then what's the sin and what's the solution? What's the sin and what's the solution? And so we're going to spend some time now this morning in the book of Romans. And we started with Romans last week as well, but we started in Romans 12. And today I want to pull into Romans 2. Because Romans 2 has some of the clearest teaching, and it's um, on the, a, a diagnosis of the sin problem that we have. And so I went to, oh, that's Philippians 2. That's going to read totally differently than Romans. Here we go, Romans 2. And um, just a few verses here. Let's see, we're going to do uh, 21. Oh, I'm sorry, Romans 1, 21 through 25. I apologize, Romans 1, 21 through 25. Because 2 kind of comes after all this stuff here. So I'm going to read through here, and I just want you to hear some of the things that God says about the brokenness of the world. And by the way, this comes at, at, on the heels of Revelation, and you're going to hear that in this text. But there's this idea like, well, how am I supposed to know what God wants? Well, God says that he made it very clear to everybody what he wants, and it's not unknown to us. And, uh, and so we'll talk more about that in a, mon- in a minute. But this is what the word says in verse 21. Because although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their Their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 1 and 2 is one of these passages that constantly reminds me of our own brokenness in Christ. But there's this idea that Romans solidifies for me so many things that I have to make a decision on. And by the way, I want you to understand that following Christ in our lives requires a decision, and you're going to choose to either be submitted unto his word and unto his will, or you're going to go your own way. And, and, and if you go your own way, you can go any way you want. I'm just telling you right now. You can just make up a path. But God's word constricts us or restricts us into a path that he calls loving. And so he lays this idea out for us. So some things I want you to see in verse 21. A couple things. They knew God. That's the first thing. And I've often heard people say to me, well, it's not fair because they don't know God. I mean, how can they know God? Listen, we all know God in some way. I was talking to a friend of mine about the the. the um, the nat- nature and how nature re- is reveals God, and they go, "Well, nature shouldn't be worshipped," and that's correct. Nature shouldn't be worshipped, but nature does reveal God. Like we should wake up in the morning and see snow on the ground and go, "Wow, thank God for the snow." That's interesting. He made snow. I went down some steps last night. They were icy. I had to thank God for the icy steps, and I thank God that I didn't break my neck on them as well. Right? You look out this morning. It was raining this morning. I was like, "Oh, it's a sloppy day." Right? But it's watering the earth. Like what's going on? You look at the trees right now. They're just coming to life. I mean, what's God revealing through nature? This is what God says. They knew God, but what's the problem then? They didn't glorify him as God, nor give thanks to him, again, as God. So the failure is not in knowing God. The failure is they wouldn't glorify him. The word there's doxa, right? The word we get the word doxology from. 
and um, give thanks, which is Eucharisto, right? So we thank God. So the two things we ought to do is we ought to glorify God and thank God. But these are failures he's talking about. This is the sin diagnosis found in Romans 1. What happens? What's the result? And I just want you to hear it with me and just let the word do its work because I think we want to go, eh, it's, it's not, it, I get it. It's uncomfortable. Listen to what the word says. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. What? So although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor give thanks to him as God, but their thinking became futile. It means they become like cyclical and broken and, and confused. It become useless thinking. And then the scariest part of, to me is not your mind being messed up, but your heart gets dark. You know, Dale said there's all these red hearts, red hearts. But what about a black heart? That'd be no kind of celebration at all, would it? Or a dark you know, like a dark, like not brown, but you know, it's like turning from red to black. Just if you, the dark you get, the weirdest, like, wait, wait, what are we doing here? And that's what the word says, that by not glorifying God and not thanking God, their hearts became dark places. Their minds became confused um, entities. Their thinking was clouded. And this explains so much of the sin problem that we have. We, we can get completely lost, completely deluded, completely confused, and then, like I told you last week, we have this thing that God's saying, and we have all this craziness we're thinking, and they don't match up, and we go, well, it must be God that's wrong, not me. That's the sin. That's the error. That's the brokenness. And so we follow after our own way. Listen to verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, all right, got it all figured out, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to be like mortal man, that's the first one, and birds and animals and reptiles. So here again, although claiming to be wise, they became fools, foolish, and they exchanged, remember this for that, they traded the image of God, the glory of the immortal God, for images to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. I want to give you a, um, a, a shorter reading of that text, because I was really struck by it. They exchanged the glory for images. That's biblically accurate. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. So this beautiful creation. There's this God who made everything, including us, and they decided instead of worshiping and adoring all of that, they would instead worship and adore images. The, the word calls those idols. You go, well, we don't have statues. We have idols. Oh, yeah, but we don't, we don't do it like that. I get it, but we have idols. And that this is the text warning us about idols in our lives. What's the problem? Because they exchanged God, the immortal God, the ever-living, ever everlasting God for images that are made to, and look at what the word says, look like men. They're not men and they're not women. They're images made to look like real men and women. <laughs> you hear me? <laughs> it's not real. It's fake. It's false. And then it goes on, and birds and animals and reptiles. And you go, okay, okay, he's getting, talking about old school idolatry. Yes, they, they had totems and stuff. Yes, I, I, I'm not, I don't have a totem problem in my life. I don't have a totem pole in my yard. I don't worship false gods like that. Maybe not. Maybe you do. 24, therefore, now there's a therefore. Because of this, because their foolish hearts were, uh, their, their foolish minds were, um, their foolish hearts were darkened and their um, minds became futile. Therefore, God gave them over, now here it is, to sinful desires of their hearts. 
Just hear that with me. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. And then it goes on to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And so Paul's laying this out. And he's like, so because of this, because they wanted it so badly, and this is one of those, man, I'm gonna maybe do a series one time called the scariest verses of the Bible. But this is one of those scariest verses of the Bible right here. It says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Stop right there. That's a terrifying verse of scripture. That I, I just wanna flesh this out. That if you or I, and I'm included in this. If, though we know God, if we look at something and we start to desire something and we want something and then we start thinking how I can get that thing and my heart starts to become dark and I become looking at my neighbors, you know, like I'm going to do something to get this thing and I pursue it. And, but that's not scary. That's not scary as much as God then giving us over to the sinful desires of our heart. <sighs> that's scary. Because my heart unconstrained, my heart unrestrained, I can pursue all kinds of brokenness and evil. And if you, this is why I feel like it's in there. And if you, after it long enough, if you want it long enough, God will be like, fine, have it. And you go, I'm free. And you're wrong. You're in bondage. I, I'm just doing whatever I want, man. No, you're not. You're doing, you're doing everything that you desire, but not, but not what's good. And I want to take this away because we, I want to take it away from this, like, well, that's those sins. No, it's all of our sins. It's the things that we want that are really good in life. It's the, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. What's the fundamental sin that's listed in, in Romans 1? The fundamental sin is not a sexual sin. The fundamental sin is not those people doing those things that are bad. The fundamental sin is the thing that we all have a tendency to do. And we can do it with very good things. We can do it with very good things. And it's still equally as sinful. What is it? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And listen to what the word says. And they worshiped and served created things. There's a this for that. They worshiped and served created things instead of the one who made them and the things. Do we, we don't think about that often. This is, this is our sin problem. If we can objectify another human being, if we can objectify another item, and then we can just pursue it with reckless abandon and get it at all costs, we don't have to contend with the fact that this thing that we're pursuing is something that God himself made for good, that God didn't make it to be objectified, that God didn't intend it to be an image, but a person. This happens not, again, not just in a few places, but in a lot of places. You see here, Here's the truth. Our hearts are idle factories. By the way, I didn't say that. I heard someone say that. And I don't know who said it, but I'm like, that stuck with me, that our hearts constantly have a tendency to churn out idols. It's just what happens. It's like when the machine's on, idols are popping out. That's the way that works, right? And so what does that mean? We have to recognize that that's a fact and continually reshape our heart to a higher thing. What's the fundamental sin? They worshiped and served created, th created things is that the worshiping and serving of the created things is a space that's reserved for God himself. You don't worship things. You don't worship others. You worship God. You don't, we serve others, but you serve God. You serve others through, you know, um, in serving others, you serve God. Is that fair enough to say? So you don't, the idea is you don't pursue these things to the exclusion of God or even in the place of God or even equal with God. Our hearts are idle factories. They just crank them out, crank them out, crank them out. Fundamentally, this is a worship problem. That's it. 
This is a worship problem. And I have a question for you this morning. What do you worship in your life? What do you have a tendency to elevate? And that's all worship is. It's just raising something up a little higher, a little higher, until you're after it all the time. What are the things in your life and what are the things in my life that I have a tendency to worship? Because that's God's accusation against the people. And that's the, the result of him surrendering them to the desire of their heart. So they just go chase after things that are completely broken. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart. And then here's what the word says, this for that. And they exchanged, again, the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things instead of the creator, who is to be forever praised. And so, so what does this look like practically then in our lives? What does it look like practically? It's like this. There are a lot of good things, okay? And that's one of the things we get wrong about this. We think, well, no, it's bad. It's all bad. No, it's good. It's good to want a partner in life. It's good to want to love somebody and be loved back. It's good to want to be intimate in some relationships. It's good to want to um, know and be known. Those are all good God-honoring things. But when we elevate those things above God himself who made us and gave us those desires, we have now become idol worshipers, right? So some ways that this works out in our relationships. Here we're going to come up to Valentine's Day. Now, I don't know if any of you are like me, but chances are you're not going to be perfect by the fr this Friday. You're probably not going to love your spouse perfectly by this Friday. You're probably not going to have that dream date by this Friday. You're probably not going to become the person that's going to attract the perfect person, the perfect partner, and everything's going to be perfect by Friday. Probably not going to happen. And so with that in mind, you're going to have to accept something less than that. But here's the problem. If you look at your spouse, your husband, your wife, and this isn't me saying, Chris is even in here, to say, but they didn't do it just right. We're elevating that relationship over the ultimate God who made that person. See, there's a brokenness there. And that's what I'm saying. This can happen in a marriage, outside of marriage. It can happen with our kids. Here's an idol factory. Our kids are idol factories. They come out of our house. And we go, yes, I love Jesus, and yes, I love my family second. But then sometimes you look at your kid, and you're like, oh, man, I really love that kid, though. That's idolatry. You know what's funny? I think there's a little game being played with God and Satan, where God attacks, or where Satan attacks the things that he thinks he can destroy, and God lets him because he wants us to understand it ain't the most important thing. <laughs> so let me just tell you something. Uh, I love young parents because I was one. <laughs> I always said that when you're a youth pastor, you got to be, I've only met a few youth pastors that have had teenagers. <laughs> I'll just say that. Uh, because I was that dude, and, and, uh, and you got all these answers, and then you go through it, and you realize, oh my gosh, my family's been an idol to me. You know, my kids act right because I can make them act right, and then you can't make them act right no more. Um, and guess what? They're sinners, just like me. Why would I think anything different? That's an idol factory. You know what Satan loves to do? Bam, hit the family. Like, what? What happened? And then God's like, yeah, 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 because that's not your God. How, listen to me. What kind, of a, a, um, a, what kind of a parent you are is not a sign of your holiness and godliness. What kind of a child you are is not a sign of your holiness and godliness. What kind of a spouse you are, what kind of a fiancé, or a, what kind of a anything you are is not a sign of your holiness and your righteousness. It's It's not. It's Christ. We are sinners. And I'm not saying that we didn't go off and sin. No, <laughs> no. But we wait with joyful hope because there's something better. 
I wonder as I read Romans 1, what would have happened to those people if instead of exchanging the image of God for um, images of, or the, the glory of God, that's what it says, for images of man, or instead of exchanging the truth of God for a lie, if they had just kept their focus on God, how would their lives have turned out? Not left in wanton depravity. I'm telling you, as a fellow journeyer, here's the problem. All week, I'm wrestling with this text. And then God's just going, mm, 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 in a loving way. He's going, what's in your heart, Bill? And I'm like, oh, there's so much stuff in my heart. And I say, you're first. And then I look at this stuff, and I want it a certain way. And it creates all kinds of problems when I elevate things that are not worthy of worship. This can happen anywhere, in any relationship, in anything we desire. And ultimately... And ironically, it's rooted in selfishness because I need to be satisfied with my things, with what I have. So, so this is the problem, right? We exchange the truth of God for lie and we worship and serve created things rather than the creator himself. You can go through all kinds of things if you're serving God. Matter of fact, the Bible is replete and I can't even get into them with calls for us to do exactly that. Don't look at your current situation. Look at the Christ. Look at the gospel. Look at the hope of resurrection. Look beyond. This is why I get so discouraged, matter of fact, whenever so many of us fail. It's not the failing. That's not a problem. But it's the, re- it's the letting go of the gospel at the point of failure that I get so discouraged by. Like we thought we were better than that. We're not. We need the gospel. We need to remember that we've been forgiven. We need to be reconciled to God and one another. And that takes whole people. I told you I did this um, pastor's thing this week, and there was a guy, I do get this quote, because I, I typed it real quick, you know. Paul David Tripp was speaking, and he said this, worship is not what we do. Worshipers is who we are. Everyone worships something, all of us. And he gave a pause there. He was talking to pastors. A bunch of pastors like, yeah, we all worship something. No, 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 not just you, every person. It's not if you will worship, but what or who you will worship. And this explains so much of the brokenness in the world that we see because they're worshiping things that aren't worthy of worship. We are worshiping things that aren't worthy of worship. And then they get out elevated and then all this weirdness comes out of it, right? And it's like, it's not... It's not if we're going to worship. We're going to worship something. Everyone does. Everyone does. But what or who are you going to choose to worship? And the question comes down to that question in Romans. Will you worship God or will you worship a lie? Will you worship God or will you worship the things that God has made? That's the question. What will we worship? And so that's the sin diagnosis, right? And that's a bummer. It's like, Man, that's not fun. I get it. I was there all week, right? So how about some hope? What do you do then? If this is what, what Paul's writing to the church in Rome about the brokenness, then what do we what do? We do? And uh, I have some words for you from that. Here, here's, and these are going to be familiar to you, right? But here's uh, the first comes from Roman, or, uh, Hebrews 12. Lots of 12s this morning. Um, Hebrews 12. Perfect. One and two. Uh, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this is after the faith chapter, like all the people have been faithful to God, all the people have been faithful to God, and encouragement. Let us throw off everything that hinders, and listen to what the word says, and the sin that so easily entangles us or ensnares us. So let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily gets wrapped around our feet, and let us run the race with perseverance marked out for us. Let us run with perseverance the race that God has marked out for us. And here's what it says in verse 2. And let us, what? Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
So the question is, in the middle of the run, you realize something else, you're looking the wrong way, you're doing something else, what do you do? And the word says clearly, you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. This is how you out-elevate Jesus over any idol in your life. I don't care what you love, if you don't hold Jesus above it, you're going to screw this thing up. So you've got to keep Jesus above and then pursue Jesus and then let everything else work itself out. And, and that's not something we, I think we say those things, something we often do. To make a willful decision in my heart, God, I know I'm going through a hardship. God, I know I want this other thing. Matter of fact, I've told y'all before, one of my favorite things about Jesus is the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he says, God, I don't want this. If there's another way, and at the end he says what? But not what I want, what you want. And he's the perfecter of our faith. He prays that prayer earnestly to the point of shedding blood. Is there something that you want in your life? I always tell people, ask for it, man, and pursue it, but not the expense of the gospel of Christ. At the end of the day, we say, I want it, and I'm, I probably got this wrong, but I want you more. Will you help me to worship you more? Will you help me to pursue you more so that all this other stuff it will work out? That's what Paul says, the sin that so easily ensnares us. That's what happens. It's so subtle. It gets around. No, fix your eyes on Jesus. So we fix our eyes on Christ, running, living with our eyes fixed on him. Here's another one then. This is from the Gospel of Matthew uh, 6. Oops. 6, uh, let's see, I got it up here. Maybe my clicker's not clicking. Um, can you go forward a couple? Are we stuck? That's all right. We'll just go with it. Um, Matthew 6, 31 through 33 this is what the word says. Do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Because pagans run after these things. This is Jesus teaching, by the way. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. And here's the word though. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Now to be fair, that's talking about clothes and food and drink, right? And you're like, well, that's different. And it is and it's not, right? It's the same idea, that we pursue the things of Christ first. I've told you all before in years past that this is one of those verses that I have literally put into effect. I've wanted something, and I'm not saying I do this very well all the time at all. That's confessional, right? But, but I, I've won something, and I realize I'm just after it too hard. I'm too hung up on it. I'm too obsessed with it. And I go, you know what, Jesus? I'm going to let that go. I'm going to focus on your kingdom and your righteousness. I'm going to stop. And invariably, then it all works out. But as long as I'm obsessed, as long as I'm like a dog, you know, a dog with a favorite bone, just can't let it go, can't let it go, I'm losing. And I don't even know what I'm losing. I'm losing the opportunity to be part of his kingdom and his righteousness. So what do you do? You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then the word doesn't say you'll never get those things you want. It says, and all these things will be added to you. They'll be given to you. Matter of fact, a chapter later, in verse seven, the word says this. Oh, look, we're live, maybe. Hey, thanks, guys. Uh, Matthew 7, verses 9 to 11. This is Jesus' teaching still. And this is one of those great questions. Which of you, if your son or daughter asks for bread, would give him or her a stone? Or if they ask for a fish, would give them a snake? If you then, and listen to the word, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? What? He asked this question, if your kid asks something good, are you going to give it to him? The answer is yes. If your kid asks for something, are you going to give him something that's bad instead? The answer is no. <laughs> and then he drops the bomb. And you're evil. You think God doesn't know what you need? Do I believe that God doesn't know what I need? That I need to define for him what is good and right and proper for me? 
Like, that's where we get hung up, right? Like, though I am evil, and, and, and the problem is this, then, <clears throat> I'm going to try to settle down here, we end up judging God for what he will not give to us on our own schedule and demand. We're like the angry two-year-old. I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. Sometimes in parenting you say, fine, have it. And usually bad things happen. But who are we? Who do we think we are? Though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts. That's what the word says. And then he says, how much more? How many? A couple ways to apply this text. First of all, God is not going to give you something bad for you unless you demand it repeatedly, just like that stubborn kid. That's the scary thing about Romans 1. Gave them over to desires of their heart. Just be careful how long you pursue those things, how bad you want it. You're talking to Jesus. But how about this? How about if, how about you modify that when you say, God, I really want it, but you know me. You know what I need. You know who you made me to be. And then we follow him. See, that's a much more um, biblical model. Your heavenly father knows the good things that you need in life. I get it. How many stories have we heard from the Bible of people whose needs have not been met? They waited their whole lives for God to fulfill a promise. And we call them what? Heroes of the faith. But I don't want to be a hero. <laughs> I want my stuff right now. I'm not going to wait my whole life to have God keep a promise to me. I want it right now. I don't wait for my kid to get to that rough patch. I want it right now. And we end up worshiping false things. No, keep our eyes fixed on Christ seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. And the heavenly father who gives all good gifts to his children will give us the good gifts. That answers the question, why won't God give me whatever I'm asking for? Here's why. He loves us too much. He loves us too much. He won't. Why would God cause us to go through hard times? He loves us. He loves us. He shapes us. I want to end with a story. This is a Bible story. You've heard it before. Um, this is going to be from the Gospel of Matthew. Again, we're going to finish here in Matthew 14. I'm going to read the story, and I want to talk about a little bit of it here at the end. <clears throat> Jesus is hanging out with the disciples. He's doing all kind of cool stuff. They're, everybody's down for Jesus. And then it says, um, after he feeds a bunch of people, it says this in, in chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples. Some words stand out to me in this. I'm going to just kind of hit them as I go. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. And go ahead of him to the other side. He was going to go dismiss the crowd. After he went back and dismissed the crowd, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. So you have this modeling of Jesus. I'm going to go pray by myself, send the disciples on across the water. When evening came, he was there alone on the mountain. But the boat had already gone a considerable distance, that's hilarious, from the land. Buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to the disciples walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified, and they screamed, It's a ghost! They cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, or take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. Peter says this, Well, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water. And Jesus says, Come. Then Peter got down out of the boat, he walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And then finishing the story, 32. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat worshiped Jesus, saying, 
Truly, you're the son of God. Kind of interesting story. You've heard it before. Wow, Peter walks on water. That's so cool. Wait, wait. Wow, Jesus walks on water. That's so cool. Wait. Wow, Jesus makes disciples get in a boat by themselves and go out and paddle against the waves for hours and hours and hours while he's on the mountain praying. Do you know what it said there? It said, in the morning. <laughs> in the morning. Jesus prayed all night, and they're out there just, we're going to get there. Jesus said, get there. We're going to make it. Just keep paddling. Come on, guys. You know, if you're a disciple in a boat, like, how mad are you to the disciples? Like, somebody's not pulling their weight, right? Jesus said, go. We're going to, we got to go. We got to go. And in the middle of that chaos, here comes Jesus walking on the water. They forget, ah, it's a ghost. You know, that's great. Biblical response to seeing Jesus in your life. And he says, I am. And then Peter does this crazy thing. But here's some things to think about. Peter gets out of the boat. Yeah, we know. It says he gets down out of the boat. I always had the idea of the story. I would love to know how big this boat was. I really want to know. I don't know how big it was. Because I have an idea of like a John boat, like an aluminum John boat that's only like about a foot. Out, and Peter's like this. You know what I'm saying? Like you can do a little test, and then once you get a little foot, you're like, okay, okay, I'm coming, right? But it says he got down out of the boat. Matter of fact, later on, when Jesus and Peter walked back to the boat, it says they climbed up into the boat. And I looked at the Greek because I'm a geek, and I looked at it, and what does it say? It says they ascended into the boat. He descended from the boat. I have a new image for Peter. Here he is on the side of the boat. <laughs> he said, come over there. He's hanging on. I'm going to come up. I'm coming. How far do you, I don't know. They get there. They got to climb up from the water. I don't know how big of a boat it was. I don't know. Some of you guys are like, it's a small boat, Bill. It's fine. Making much of Maybe. Peter's walking. Wow. Listen, what's, what's the thing, though? This, this, the teaching on this text is when he saw the strong winds, right? I've heard this preach before. What? He was looking at Jesus. Jesus said, come to me. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. And then all of a sudden, he realized, halfway to Jesus, he realized he's in the middle of a storm. <laughs> he forgot. He's out of the boat. He's not safe anymore. He's not of his own power anymore. And now he's in the middle of the lake or in the middle of the water, and he's desperately vulnerable. One of my biggest fears in movies is those movies where, like, someone goes out scuba diving, and they're, like, down there snorkeling, and they're being cool, and then the boat drives off without them. You ever seen those movies? And people, like, blow up their pants and float all night, and the sharks are going around them. You know what I'm saying? That's scary. Halfway to Jesus, Peter realizes, what am I doing? Who do I think I am? The word says that he looks at the wind. The, by the way, he's not just like, oh, it's breezy out here. It's a strong wind. And then the, it's almost like he's going through the chaos, and then he realizes in a hot minute, oh, my gosh. And he gets, what's the word say? Afraid. He gets afraid. You've heard that preach before? I have. What else is going on? The disciples are still in the boat. You know, I'd be thinking, yeah, dummy, <laughs> you got out of the boat. <laughs> what do you think was going to happen <laughs> when he thought he'd walk on water until he didn't? Here's my favorite part. Here's my favorite part. <laughs> not the miracle that he walked on water, not the miracle that Jesus walked on water, not the miracle he got out of the boat, but that he started to sink in his fear. And in the sinking, he cried out, Lord, save me. And what's the word say? <sighs> Jesus reached out his hand and saved him. What does that mean for sinners like us? I told you before, I said, man, when you fight, fight with the Holy Spirit. Don't fight with the Holy Spirit. Fight using the Holy Spirit on your side. You know what I'm saying? Invite God into our sin and struggle. Invite God into the chaos of our lives. And I mean it. And I struggle with this too. Because I'm, I'm at the oars. I'm like, we're going to get this. Jesus said we're going. We're going to get there. No. I love, 
I love, we talk about Peter, Saul, and was afraid. No, no, no. In his moment of need, what's his instinct? What's his, his desire? I need a savior. I don't need a miracle. I don't need the ability to walk. I don't need the ability to get out of the boat. I need someone to save me. I'm going to drown. And Jesus does. Listen, the miracle is that he reaches out and he snatches us up again, right? He says, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? How do you read that? Oh, you have little faith. How do you read that? Oh, you have little faith. Why did you stop looking at me? Why did you believe the wind and the waves and the storm around you? What is he asking? Why did you make an idol of your ability, an idol of the circumstance, an idol of your desire? And then they went back and got in the boat. This is our call. Elevate Jesus. If you want to fix your eyes on something, fix your eyes on Christ. Listen to me. I know you say it. I say it too. I will. I will. I know that we leave this room and we go out into the ugly world and then we get overwhelmed with the storm. We get afraid and we freak out. I want to encourage you not here this morning, but when you're out there this week struggling or having a great week, whatever, that you would elevate Jesus. Fix your eyes on Christ. He's the one who can save us. And this is the opportunity that we have. So to close, I want to ask some questions. What do you need God to save you from? What idol is in your heart that you need God to save you from worshiping? Here's one. What are you afraid of more than anything else? What are you afraid of? And then lastly, what are the things that you're tempted to begin worshiping right now in your life? What are those things? I'm going to ask you now, brothers and mind, to take them to the Lord in prayer with me. And you're going to say them out loud. Just pray them as I pray. I want you to pray yourself to God. Talk to him with me. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the revelation of your word and this idea that you've commanded us to love one another. And we know that you've loved us. And help us to know that first and believe that before anything else, that you've loved us so much. And then, Father, for the things that we've learned from your word today about the tendency we have to worship things that are not worthy of worship and then to demand things that aren't ours to have and then to hold each other to account and maybe especially those who we're closest to in ways that they shouldn't be held because uh, we desire things that, that aren't good. Uh, Father, would you help us to let go of those things? Father, I pray this morning that if there are things that we've brought to mind, that you've brought to mind for us, that we are, have a tendency to fall down in worship, that we have a tendency to believe are our markers of holiness or are better than you, better than Jesus, that you would teach us to rightly order those things under your authority. Help us to acknowledge you and to follow you with full confidence that you know what you're doing even when we don't. And Father, my prayer for myself and my friends here this morning is that we would fix our eyes on you. You know me, and you know the struggles that I have, and you know all of us, you know the struggles we have, Father. Just help us in this spiritual fight to elevate you to your proper status in our lives. May you be glorified as you call us toward yourself. We love you so much, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.